following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. I would now like to invite Stella Anderson up. She will be doing our scripture reading today, so you can turn to your Bibles to Psalm 130. If you do not have a Bible, you are welcome to take the Pewback Bible in front of you as a gift from Park Church. Again, today we are in Psalm 130. Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Stella. Good morning to all of you. How's everybody doing? My name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. We're so excited you all have joined us this rainy Sunday. What is up with the weather? A friend of mine is in from Oklahoma City, and she's like, what is this, the Pacific Northwest? Uh, it does feel like it. Uh, every, every summer we come back to the Psalms. Uh, we started all the way back in 2011 with Psalm 1, and we progressively and chronologically worked our way through uh, them every summer since. So we cover about 10 to 12 Psalms. Uh, each summer. So this summer will be in Psalm 130 through Psalm 139. Um, if you also didn't notice, as you're walking in, there's a piece of artwork out there. We commission artists from our church. We say, hey, here's a, here's a sign-up. Uh, pick a psalm and respond to it artistically. Um, and they respond. They study it. They spend some time with it. And then they try to create something that helps us see that psalm in a new light. And uh, this is one of the ways that God has given us and gifted us artists that help us see the text in new ways. Uh, the artists help disciple our eyes, help disciple our imagination, and help us see the text in new ways that we might not have just by reading it. And so I encourage you, if you haven't yet, go check it out. There's also an artist statement out there that shares a little bit about the piece, about the process. So check that out. This is a way that uh, we love. Um, after that uh, Sunday, we'll move it up over to this wall. So if you missed a Sunday, uh, go check out the other pieces over there. Uh, why the Psalms? Why do we do this every summer? Uh, the Psalms were an integral part of Israel's life of worship. They're a huge part of Jesus' life and ministry. Uh, they were essential for the early church and ongoingly, and they're vital uh, for us here in Denver today. We would even say that a psalmless disciple is a malnourished disciple. A psalmless disciple is a malnourished disciple. Why? The Psalms teach us to do three things. Uh, number one, they teach us to pray. Uh, do you ever feel... Uh, like you lack the words to say before God. You kind of run out of things to say to him. Uh, the Psalms are important for those beginning to pray, those developing a vocabulary in prayer, but they're also essential for those who are seasoned veterans who have done this for years and years and years. So the Psalms are essential for those who feel like they're deconstructing. They, don't, they lack the words. They don't even know where to start with God. The Psalms are a gift for those in order to teach us to pray. I remember hearing the story about Sandra McCracken. She's a, a songwriter, and, and uh, she walked through just a, a hard divorce, and for months, she said, she wasn't able to pray. Um, and 
one day she just started opening uh, the Bible up to the Psalms and putting it out on her kitchen counter. And slowly but surely, the Psalms began to speak for her. And this aligns with a Eugene uh, Peterson quote, which says this, while the rest of Scripture speaks to us, the Psalms speak for us. And so I want to say this to you, the Psalms teach you and teach us to pray. Uh, second reason why, why the Psalms are so important, too, they teach us to feel Do you know that God gave us our emotions? He's the one who actually feels himself. He is the God of emotions. He gave us the capacity to experience the full range of our emotions, anger, joy, sadness, fear, disappointment, gratitude. Unfortunately, I think there's this stereotype that when it comes to church, we should check the dark emotions off at the door and then pick them up on our way out. And that's the way things should be. The Psalms actually invite us to take up all of these emotions before the presence of God and hold them equally low and high before God and say, these are, this is all of me. This is, I'm trying to love you with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that includes all of these emotions. So, so the Psalms teach us to feel. There's this quote from Dane Ortland that says this. The Psalms are not just happy and they're not just for those who are in pain. They cover the whole range of emotions, thanksgiving, the need for forgiveness, lament, and the need to confess. And so to make an analogy for for us today, uh, if you walk into a restaurant, if you even walk into church sometimes, they hand you a couple crayons, right? They're in a little pack, so I'll have a little picture up there. We we get a little packet of crayons. And I think sometimes our emotional life is kind of like this. All of us kind of have our go-to two to three emotions. We're kind of generally happy people. Maybe some of us are more sad. Some of us might be angrier, right? Um, and and kind of if we had a coloring sheet in front of us, and this is our prayer life, we generally express ourselves with these same colors. This is great, but I think the gift that the Psalms are to us is that the Psalms come to us something more like this. And I stole this from my daughter. I asked her permission. Uh, but the, but the, the Psalter comes to us like this. And it's, you know, it's got the 150 psalms in it and 150 different colored crayons, right? It says, here you go. We know you need help expressing your feelings before God. And so it's not just green, one color of green, but multiple colors of green. We've got, what do we got here? Olive green, got forest green, asparagus green. No, oh, actually it is. That's cool. Um, And I think that the Psalms comes to us knowing that we need help. It comes to us with our two to three crayons and says, put these in your toolkit. And so that's what what the Psalms come to us. The Psalms are a massive upgrade to our spiritual crayon box. And I want to encourage you, this summer, allow the Psalms to stretch your colors, if you will. And so maybe at the end of this summer, there are more colors on your spiritual coloring sheet. In your prayer life, there will be broader colors than at the beginning of this Summer. The third reason why the Psalms are so important, they teach us about Jesus. Did you know the whole Bible is about Jesus, including the Old Testament? Well, Jesus just came around in the New Testament. Well, that's true. But not only did Jesus pray these Psalms, but he also taught us that the Psalms pointed us to him. They taught us about him. Luke 24 says this, verses 44 through 45. He's talking to these two guys on the road to Emmaus. And he says this to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. And listen to this, that everything written about me, Jesus, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. I want to read that again. Everything written about me, or Jesus, in the law of Moses or in the Torah and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Augustine said this, in the Old Testament, the new is concealed and in the new, the old is revealed. And so as we read the Old Testament, as we look at the Psalter, 
We must learn to look for and find Jesus in the Old Testament. That's what we are called to do, to read the Old Testament in the same way that Jesus would teach us to read the Old Testament, to look at the Psalms in the same way that Jesus would. And so that's why we've called this series Christ in the Psalms. Uh, Today, we're going to look for Jesus in Psalm 130. So would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you that you're here with us. We say open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. We want to learn about prayer. We want to grow in our prayer lives. Would you grow each of us in our prayer lives? But also, would you give us eyes that see you in this psalm? We want to find you in Psalm 130. We want to see you in it, and we want to find you as beautiful, as believable, as knowable. Uh, Would you change us this summer? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start our time in Psalm 130 actually by showing you a picture from a movie. I want you to identify this movie if you can. Never Ending Story. That's right. It was uh, made a little bit popular uh, on season three of Stranger Things. Dusty Buns has to sing to Susie. Uh, a, a song from this, but in the Never Ending Story, it's a book turned movie in 1984. The 80s are coming back so strong, y'all. Um, it warms, warms my heart. But uh, in the Never Ending Story, the main character, Atreyu, uh, he's on a quest searching for a cure for the princess uh, and is trying to rid Fantasia of the evil known as the darkness. And this scene is from Atreyu uh, trying to make his way through what's known as the Swamp of... Sadness, the swamp of sadness. So they start, he's, he's on his horse, Artax, and they're making their way through the swamp of sadness. But Atreyu says this about the swamp. Everyone knew that whoever lets the sadness overtake them would sink into the swamp. So as they're making their way through the swamp of sadness, Artax, if you remember the movie, suddenly stops. Like, and like Atreyu's like, come on, Artax, fight the sadness, fight the sadness. And it's a very intense scene, and I, I don't know if, if you cried. I, I, I may have shed a tear or two in this scene. You're like, not the horse, you know, not the horse. And yet, uh, you know, kind of a uh, spoiler alert, Artax sinks. He gives way into the sadness, and he dies. Now, I, I want to remind you that you've literally had 39 years to watch this movie, so I don't feel too bad that it was a, a spoiler alert, right? But my question for you and my question for us today is when you find yourself in the swamp of sadness, when you find yourself in the depths, as this psalm says, what do you do? What do you do? You will find yourself in the swamp of sadness at one, two, three, multiple times in your life. And how do you not let the sorrow and the despair over take you. And I believe that Psalm 130 offers us a roadmap and a way out of these swamps of sadness. And so I want to talk briefly about what this psalm is about before we look at the passage. We are unsure about who wrote this particular psalm. We do know it's a part of a collection of songs uh, known as the Songs of Ascents, the Songs of Degrees, or these pilgrim songs. These were the songs that were on the lips of, of Jewish worshipers as they would make their way to Jerusalem three times a year for Jewish festivals, uh, Jewish feasts. Uh, this was track 11 on, uh, 11 on their pilgrim's playlist, if you will. They would be bumping this all the way up to Jerusalem and while they were there. Last summer, we looked at the first 10 of the 15. Uh, this summer, we'll be in the last five. And so while someone, Psalm 130 is part of this collective songs of ascent, I, I really, as I study this passage, it really could stand on its own as a song of ascent. Why? What do I mean? It begins in the depths and ends in the heights. And really, that's the story of this Psalter. It begins in the swamps of sadness, and it leads us onward, out 
of those swamps. And so uh, it's made up of eight verses, four stanzas apiece. And for the sake of simplicity and a roadmap for us today, um, I'm going to suggest that Psalm 130 offers each of us four crayons that we desperately need in our crayon set. Four crayons that Psalm 130 offers us uh, in our prayer toolkit. So let's look at the first stanza together, verses one and two. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Uh, This points us to our first crayon that we're gifted by Psalm 130, and that's the crayon of anguish expressed. Anguish expressed. This is one of the darkest crayons in our set. Psalm 130 refuses uh, to allow us to pretend or put on a show before God. The first words of the psalm immediately get after it. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. The psalm doesn't say out of the heights, out of the flowery things in life, out of the polite, out of the proper. This psalm starts in the depths. It starts out of the raw. It starts out of the shadowlands. It starts out of the swamps of our sadness. This psalm starts wherever we truly find ourselves before God. Do you allow the place where you truly are before God to allow its way into your prayer life? For some reason in the church, in places of anguish or places of despair, suffering, places of sin, we often suppress them more than we express them. They feel like weird nuisances. They feel like this season where all the mosquitoes have come out. We're trying to kill all the dark emotions before God and say, I don't, I'm not dealing with this, God. I just want to come to you with the happy and the holy. And yet all of these emotions are holy before God. Psalm 130 rejects that approach. It invites us to name our place, to identify it before God, and even talk to him about it. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. Notice that the psalmist doesn't just say, I'm, I'm in the depths and I'm just kind of curved inwardly, but the psalmist is turning upward saying, God, I'm crying out to you from these depths. Sometimes our prayers will be major notes with brighter colors. At other times, our prayer lives will be minor notes with darker colors. This one starts with a minor note, and that's all part of, this is why this crane is so important, of anguish expressed. This word for depths in Hebrews, out of the depths I cry to you, is only used five times in the Old Testament. Sometimes it's conjunction with other word, used in conjunction with other words. Sometimes deep waters, implying chaotic waters that we're swimming in, that we're nearly drowning in. Other times, it's a deep mire or mud. In no cases are these good depths. But it's from these depths that we're crying out to God. Note the end of verse two. Listen, uh, be attentive to the voice of my pleas, for mercy. It's not just a one and done. The psalmist is crying out, plural, pleas of mercy. It invites us to be aware and name our anguish in the presence of God again and again and again. God, here I am. God, here I am. Do you see me? God, do you see me? Do you hear me? Would you pour out your mercy on me? Let's lead this to our next stanza, verses three through four. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities or sin, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared, that you may be feared. Verses three and four hand us our second crayon, and it's a crayon of divinity declared. This next crayon uh, crayon is less dark. It's more brightly colored. It'd be easy just to merely name our place and then just not move on, uh, move beyond. But after, in this psalm, after naming our places of anguish, the psalmist invites us to not only name our swamp or our sadness or our depths, but also name who our God is. Who is this God that we pray to, that we cry out to? I feel like generally people uh, lean towards one or or, or the other on these. We're not very good at holding these 
together. Sometimes people are really good at expressing the darkness. Other times people are like, oh, everything's fine, Lord. You were just great. Uh, you're good all the time. Amen, Lord. Uh, and, and we're not great at holding these two together. And yet the, the psalmist refuses to let us like, kind of create a false dichotomy when there wasn't meant to be one. We cry out from the depths, but we also name who God is. Verse three, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The psalmist asks this rhetorical question. Really, it's answering itself. It says, Lord, if you took out a report card and graded each of us, the short of it is that all of us would be flunking. We'd all be failing before you. We all would be condemned. But thank God this psalm doesn't end there. We have a wonderful interruption in this verse. And it says, but with you, but with you. There's this beautiful contraction. But with you. You, uh, my daughters were doing uh, Mad Libs the other day, uh, and so you know, fill this in with a noun, pick an adjective, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. An interesting exercise for us would be, uh, and it's really what this is talking about: is how does God approach the psalmist? It says, "But with you there is," and he fills in the blank. If you answer that question today, "But with you there is what?" How does God come to you when you're crying out to Him from the depths? You might feel. But with you, there is apathy. But with you, there is silence. But with you, there is disappointment. But with you, there is judgment. I don't know how you'd fill that in. You might fill it in positively. The good news for us, and the psalmist fills it in with this, but with you, there is forgiveness. In verse two, the psalmist was crying out for mercy. There seems to be a need for forgiveness of sin. There was something that led the psalmist to cry out saying, God, I need your mercy. I've sinned against you. So in this case, the psalmist is rehearsing the forgiveness of God, naming this reality that God forgives them. Before holy God, our hope isn't a perfect record that we keep, but it's actually relying on the reality that God delights to show forgiveness. Do you believe that today? That as you say, as you look to God and say, but with you there is forgiveness. Do you believe that God actually delights to show his forgiveness? That when God comes to you, he comes with forgiveness in his heart. That he's not bothered by it, but he wants to pour out his forgiveness on you. This passage highlights his mercy, his grace, his steadfast love. And many would say that this psalm is kind of an unpacking of God's major self-revelation in Exodus 34, which is really like the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. It says this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And so the psalmist takes something that they knew prior of God, that's true of God, and in turn ties it directly to their situation. Have you seen those little maps where people nail in something on one geographical spot, and then they put up another geographical spot, and they kind of nail, put another nail there, and then they tie a string between them. So you see the connection between these places. And in a sense, this is theology applied. This is what the psalmist is doing. They're nailing a spot in the depths where they are. They're tying, they're, they're putting a nail in the heights of where God is. And they're tying this string between this. And God, I need your forgiveness. Would I know your forgiveness in these places of death where I need your forgiveness? While God is holy, while God is perfect, miraculously what we're met is not condemnation, but actually forgiveness. I love Eugene Peterson paraphrasing this verse in the message. He says, as it turns out, forgiveness is your habit. As it turns out, Forgiveness is your habit. This is about God. We have bad habits off of many of us. God has good and godly habits, and forgiveness is one of his habits. Verse four, 
But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. It's an interesting turn of phrase, isn't it? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Probably we wouldn't have written that if we were writing it right now. It might be confusing, uh, but I want to notate this, that there are two kinds of fear in the Bible. One is the kind that the perfect, that perfect love casts out. Uh, one is the kind that's, that says, do not be afraid. That's the most repeated command in the whole of the Bible. Do not be afraid. And that fear is meant to be gone from our lives. And yet there's this other good, healthy, godly fear that we're expected to cultivate. That's like the, the beginning of wisdom and of knowledge. That's, that's the birthing place of it. And we need this other kind of fear. A true experience of God's amazing forgiveness actually leads us to want to follow him more, not disobey him more. I think if you can picture this with me, imagine uh, that we stand before a judge, we're pronounced guilty, and we're marched off, we're on the gallows, the noose is around our neck, can you feel it there? And you're just waiting for the bottom to drop out. The crowds are there looking at you, you're just waiting for it to drop out, and suddenly someone comes up and takes the noose off of your neck and pronounces you forgiven. You have been forgiven. What does that do to your heart? Something transformative about forgiveness that we need to know. We see it in Les Mis when Jean Valjean is graciously not only forgiven when he was caught stealing, but also gifted more candlesticks. If you've been watching the latest and last season of Ted Lasso, I won't spoil it for any of you, but forgiveness and second chances do something to the soul of a human. That faithfulness, obedience, and delight in someone else springs out of the ground of forgiveness. At its heart, when true forgiveness is experienced, it changes us for the better. Forgiveness never hands us a license to sin, but rather births a deeper reverence for God and a desire to obey him and to follow him, not merely dutifully, but joyfully. That's what godly fear is in the Bible. And I want to say this, the forgiven fear God. Another interesting thing about Psalm 130 is it refuses to uh, let us settle for vague thoughts about God, invites us to be specific. If you look back at this uh, psalm, uh, they use two words for God throughout the whole of it. You see uh, one, it's not just a psalmist shouting at us, but it's like LORD in all caps. Uh, Out of the depths I cry to you, O LORD, right? Um, And then it says, O LORD, hear my voice. The first O LORD in all caps is actually a reference to Yahweh. Um, this covenantal God, it's, it's, a, it's a reminder of God's commitment to us, that he's eternally committed to us. This is a covenant between us. He's faithful to us. And then the second Lord, that's not in caps, it's just the first L, it's in caps, is, is Adonai. It's, it's, his, it's, a, it's a kind of pointing out his lordship, that it, it's his power, it's his ability to follow through on his promises. And so we have Yahweh, we have Adonai, and that's who the psalmist is pointing out to us again and again. In every stanza, except for the last one, it points out these two, this pair comes up. Yahweh, Adonai, Yahweh, Adonai, Yahweh, Adonai, and then on the last two verses, Yahweh, Yahweh. And that's, that's what the psalmist is naming out. Not only does he name out who God is, but he also calls out specific attributes and action he's asking God to take toward him. Remember his mercy, verse 2. His holiness, verse 3. Verse 4, his forgiveness. It moves on to others throughout. This is the crayon of divinity declared. We must learn to fight to declare these realities over our forgetful hearts. It's so easy when we're in the swamp of sadness. It's so easy when we're in the depths to forget who God is. So we must remember to rehearse 
who God is, to name particular things that are true of God that meet us in those depths. We must learn to tie these strings from the depths into the heights of who God is. I remember I got a phone call from uh, on, a, on a road trip. I was with my family, and they told me my brother was being rushed to the, uh, to the ER. He had fallen on his hike. He had rolled down this hill. He had hit his head on a rock. He was bleeding everywhere, and he was like having seizures. So it didn't, didn't sound all that great. Somehow, I think the message got lost in translation. Um, my, my sister-in-law's parents are from Ecuador, so they got a phone call, and they actually thought that my, they were told that my brother died. So, spoiler alert, he didn't die. He's, he's fine. But, um, but they were like, oh my gosh, okay, we got to go break the news to our daughter that her husband died. So they're getting their things ready. And I'm driving in the car, and I don't know what's happening with my brother. I don't, you know, he's in California. I'm driving, I think I'm driving to Oklahoma at that time. And I was like, I don't even know what to pray. So again, we've talked about the Psalms. They teach us to feel, they teach us to pray. And I was like, I have no words to say to God right now. I just want my brother to be healed. And so I, I said, man, I, I feel deep fear right now. So I identified the place of depth. I identified the swamp that I was in. I said, and I remember this verse, Psalm 56. I'd memorize it through this, this song. It's like, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. And I just began to pray, saying, God, I'm afraid. I, I'm afraid. And I, I began to repeat it again. When I am afraid, I'm afraid right now. I put my trust in you, God. Help me put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. And, and a few, um, probably, what was it, half an hour later, found out that my brother made it okay to the hospital. He was fine. Everything was great. But that psalm anchored me in that time. Specific things, naming the reality that I was in, the fear that I was in, but also these truths of God helped anchor me in those times. Verses five and six, third stanza. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. This is our third crayon, it's this crayon. It's a crayon of hopeful, watchful waiting. In a sense, this color is a blend between the last two colors, you know, when you grab two crayons from a set and you color at the same time using them. That's what this psalmist is doing. They remember God and the depths that they're in, but they remember who God is in the heights. And so what's next? Psalm 130 invites us to wait, to wait. It's our favorite thing to do in life, is it not? To wait. Uh, To be human is to learn to wait, from waiting to be fed as a child, waiting for the school bus, all the way to waiting for a diagnosis, waiting for a biopsy, waiting in hospice care for a loved one to die. We all must learn to wait. Uh, Though we all must do it, none of us are all that great at it. The psalmist is an example of someone waiting well. Verse 5, it says this, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word, I hope. The psalmist teaches that that for us to wait well, we must learn to wait for and hope not necessarily in an outcome, but actually in a person. Note what it says, I wait for the Lord. I wait for God himself. The psalmist tells us they're waiting for God, but it's a particular kind of waiting. They're not just merely holding their breath, twiddling their thumbs until things become favorable or they get their way. We're told that they are hoping in his word. Read it with me. In his word, I hope. I think often we associate hope uh, in our culture today with, I hope things work out well. Uh, I'm hopeful about the future. We think of hope as being like an optimistic, positive person. Biblical hope is a much different caliber of word. 
Hope in the Bible is a form that our faith takes on that banks on God being who he said he would be and doing the very things that he said he would do. Godly hopes rest on the fact that though the night may be long and seemingly never ending, the morning will eventually come. It might not come in our exact time frame, but it will come. That we can be sure of. Read the next verse, verse six. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. So biblical waiting is not only hopeful, but it's also watchful. It's this hope that's on the edge of its seat. The psalmist tells us they're waiting for God more than watchmen for the morning. At this time that this was written, watchmen were guards. They were sentinels of sorts uh, for towns, for military outposts, and they have one job, (laughs) to stand post all night while keeping an eye out for possible dangers lurking in the darkness while waiting for the coming dawn. I had my own watchman experience uh, this last Wednesday. I went on an overnight trip with one of my daughters in her class to the Cherry Creek Reservoir right off of 225. Um, a bunch of parents joined the teachers and they braved the evening in tents uh, after a day of like, going hike- on hikes and all that. And let me just put it this way. It was a very fun but long night. Uh, between a crying daughter, a cold daughter, uh, the giving up of my beloved pillow, uh, the rains coming down on our tent during that night, the hard floor, the tossing, the turning, the noisy sound of cars and sirens in the distance. Uh, I was uh, very ready for the morning to come put me out of my misery. Um, As I was waiting around 4 a.m., something began to happen. At first, I was annoyed, but suddenly it did give me hope. I began to hear chirping birds. First, I was like, are you serious? It's like 4 a.m. I checked my watch. I was like, why are you chirping at this time? And suddenly I was like, you know what? It's kind of an indication that the morning is closer than not. And so hang in there. As I heard their songs, I knew that dawn was inevitably coming. It was still dark out, but I knew that the night was coming to an end. And so as you wait for the depths, for the Lord, one way you can wait for him well is to remind yourself of the promises of God. And I believe this, that the promises of God come to us like these birds chirping in the night. The night is coming to an end. Do you hear the birds singing? God's promises are near. The dawn is near. Can you hear them? Are you holding fast to them? In his word, in his promises, do you hope? Do you long for them more than watchmen for the morning? Keep alert, hold strong, know God is faithful. This leads us to our fourth and final stanza. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Psalm 130 adds this final crayon to our pile, the crayon of shared hope. This final color is the brightest color of its bunch. It's meant to be a communal crayon that we all pass around to everybody around us. It's not meant to be hoarded. It's not meant to be just kept to ourselves. The writer of this psalm suddenly turns their attention to God after Uh, from God to those uh, addressing those around them, to Israel, to the gathered people who are worshiping with them. And this is what they say in verse seven. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. In a very real sense, the writer's inviting uh, those around them to do exactly what they've just done these last six verses. Find themselves in the depths, name God in the heights, and then learn to wait, to trust, to hope. Uh, We all know that if it's it's honestly very hard, if not impossible, to give away that which you don't have. The same, uh, psalmist is doing their work personally in these first six verses, and then in turn, they're inviting others to join them. It's an ind- individual prayer that's suddenly outward-facing. 
I love this quote from Derek Kidner. It says this, at the end, there is encouragement for the many from the experience of the one. Uh, this is true for those in church as we gather on Sundays, as we gather in our small groups, as we gather to meet people for coffee, uh, happy hour, wherever it is. We hope that the hope that we experience from God, we learn to share it with others. We can only comfort with the comfort that we've been given. We can only share hope as we've been given that same hope. This hope is for those that know God in the church. This hope is for those outside of the church as well. This is evangelism at its best, sharing the good news from the overflow of our hope, of our joy in God. What are we inviting people to hope in? Verses uh, 7 and 8 tell us, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And what will he do? He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So not only back in verse 4 does God meet us with forgiveness. He comes to us with forgiveness. But if you can picture some grocery bags, God, the grocery runner, the Instacart person, right? He grabs one bag full of forgiveness, and then he grabs two other grocery bags. These second two grocery bags are full of steadfast love and plentiful redemption. First, steadfast love. Uh, the steadfast love is less of a Hollywood kind of love, more of the Hebrew word for love, which is hesed. It's the covenantal committed love that he has towards his people. In the word of uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones, his love is a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. This kind of love is the love that we can bank on through the darkest nights. We can rest our heads on this even when we don't have a pillow. God's love teaches us to hope in him. And this other bag is plentiful redemption. Plentiful redemption. The word for redemption in Hebrew is generally tied to some sort of payment made to regain possession. To redeem something is to buy a lost item back. It's ransom money. And this is how God comes to us. He picks up forgiveness, steadfast love, plentiful redemption. It's not partial redemption, it's complete this power trio covers the darkest of our sins. It covers our addictions and need. Not just a couple, but all of them. I couldn't help but think of uh, this verse from It Is Well. I want to put it up on the screen and read it with you all. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. So where is Christ in Psalm 130? He's everywhere. In this last verse, we read it. We find Calvary. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Jesus is there. He left the heights of heaven to descend into the depths of humanity and into the swamps of our sadness, living out the perfect life he knew we couldn't live. If God was marking iniquities, who couldn't stand? I couldn't, you couldn't, but Jesus could and he did. He stood condemned in our place, though he was perfect. He took on the whole of our sins, not just a part of it. He took the noose that was around our necks and he placed it around his own neck and he said, pull the floor from underneath me. And he laid down his life for us. It's at the communion table that we celebrate that God in Christ come toward us with forgiveness. He comes toward us with steadfast love and he comes toward us with plentiful redemption. This is the God of Psalm 130, and it's a God that we serve and cry out to today. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you uh, that you meet us in the depths, 
uh, and not just from the heights, but you came and you descended into the depths with us to stand with us. We have a high priest who's able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses and can cover every sin. And we rejoice in this psalm today. We rejoice in it. We thank you that you come to us with these things and we want to know you more. God, we pray for this summer. We pray that this would be a summer that you enrich our prayer lives through the psalms, that you would gift us uh, the ability to feel more, to pray more, but also to worship you more through the psalms. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.